Mm -hmm. A lot of people are just dazed and confused because yep. they're always on their freaking phones. Yep. They don't think anymore. There's a lot of BS out there. Do you have an iPhone? I don't have a phone. You yeah. still have a flip phone? Or not even that? I've never it? had a cell phone. Oh my gosh! Wow. I'm a dinosaur, man. I don't care how big and bad you are, someone puts their finger in your eye, That's right. you're going to be grabbing your That's face. Right. There is no oh. ultimate self-defense. As long as you can kick, punch, gouge, bite, knee, elbow, pull hair, throw, you're doing okay. Yep. There is no, okay, someone's gonna attack, this is the technique you're gonna use, that's BS. Yeah. What have the Kardashians ever done for society? Thank you for tuning in to the Okinawa Karate Podcast. I am Josh Simmers, coming to you from Tungkanic, Pennsylvania, my hometown, and I am sitting next to Master Kevin Robinson in the Tang Sudo studio here on Tioga Street. Master Robinson, thank you so much thank for you. allowing me to come in here and train with you today. Thank you. As you know, uh, my high school friend that I graduated with, Mr. Drew Hobbs, invited me in here. I knew Drew trained here years ago. Um, took a bit of a, hi a hiatus, I think he did. Then he, he got did. back into he it. Did. So I saw him at basically our class reunion, which is known as the Tonkana Carnival, on Saturday. And he said, why don't you come on down and train? I actually, I asked if I can come down and train, basically. Um, but you guys opened the door, and I really do appreciate it. Great time. <clears throat> right off the bat, I want to say this. They broke the stereotype. They did not have the air conditioning on. It is August 4th, I think, August 5th, something like that. I don't know what the temperature is today or the humidity, but it was pretty mm -hmm. steamy and they did not have the air conditioning. So not all dojos in America use air conditioning. That is a, the myth, myth has been busted. Well, fact on that, when I bought this building, that was the first thing I ripped out of here. We have no air conditioning. I didn't turn it on because there is none. <laughs> I don't believe in air conditioning. So you want to sweat, get the impurities Nobody out. can say, Fast Robinson, at least turn on the AC. We don't have it. Yeah, you know, we don't have it. I'll open the door and turn a fan on. Yep, that's what, that's what we did. So. <laughs> Sweating profusely here in Tonkanic as I did in Okinawa. He is still soaking wet, which I absolutely love. So I'm, I was quite pleased about that. Well, but thank you. It was our pleasure. Let's get talking about your history, your style, sure. your, your life in the martial arts. If you don't mind, take us back to square one. What got you started? Okay, so square one, I was 12 years old. And uh, I came from kind of a rough background, you know, tough family life and uh, bullied a lot in school. And I was a big fan of the TV series Kung Fu and Bruce Lee. And my brother-in-law was training with Master Frank Trigenowitz in Scranton, who at that time was the biggest karate person on, in Pennsylvania. He was well-known. And uh, I had been talking to my brother-in-law one day and said, hey, I, I'm tired of being bullied. He said, I'll take, I'll, I'm a green belt with, you know... And my parents won't let me go, so he said, I'll teach you in the backyard. So my first day, he took me out, two hours in the hot sun, it was in July, 12 years old, and two hours of basics up and down his backyard. Did that for three months, and then he divorced my sister, my stepsister. I was forbidden to see him, but in that three months, he had taught me all the basic blocks and kicks. So I had learned a front stance, low block, high block, inside, outside block, you know, and the first three forms, and I did that for uh, three years until a studio opened in Tonkan. It wasn't even a studio. It was the adult education program at the old fifth grade building. I don't know if you remember yes, that. Yes, I do. Yeah, there were three yeah. teachers from, ironically, Master Trajanowitz. There were two Chodenbos, which is a black belt candidate, and a lady that was a second degree. And they started the program. And I'll never forget it because I walked in and they're like, well, we really don't want kids. We want the toughest guys. And I'm like, well, I'm staying here because that's what I want to do. So I took a class and I decided I'm going to do this till the day I die. And the rest is history. You know, I stayed... So this would have put you, uh, you started at 12, but right. not officially. So, so I officially three, started three, to get later. rank uh, when I was 15 years 15 old. Years old. So I started to get rank. I was a, a sophomore in high school. I was 15. And I started to get rank. When I was a junior, I was a green belt. Uh, at that time, it was a green belt with two stripes, so that would be a fifth gup. I think you guys call them Q. Just Q. Yeah, Q. yeah. So that would be a fifth gup. And the instructors that had started the program were all fighting amongst themselves. And they had given me a key to the studio because it was close to my home. So I would walk up before class, open the store, make sure the bathrooms had toilet paper. I'd clean the floor, you know, sweep the floors, get the heat on or the air conditioning on before class. And one day I did that and then time for the kids' class and no instructors. So here I am and I'm like, what do I do? So I taught the class. Well, then the adult class comes in and there were three guys that were my senior, they were red belts. And they're like, I don't want to teach. I don't want to teach. And I'm like, all right, I'll teach. So I, I started teaching. And that's how I started teaching. Wow. So I was a junior in high school, 1981, wow. teaching. And I drove so many people out of the studio because I thought everybody should do what I do. You know, like, <laughs> no knowledge. You know, just, we're going to drill. We're going to yeah. kill it. And I don't care if you're 55, you should be able to do what I do because yeah. I'm just a kid. You know, it's just ridiculous yeah. stuff. 
And I, I taught for, for that person, who was the only one that left, um, until 1988. In 1983, I met Grandmaster Shin, my teacher, that I stayed with until he passed away in 2012. Uh, in 1985, I started training directly under him, traveling down to Philadelphia and training with him for eight hours at a time, coming back, mm -hmm. running this other guy's studio. And then 1988, he got, you know what? I think you should leave and open your own studio. This guy never comes around. I've heard some mm -hmm. funny things about him. So I did. So I've been on my own since 1988. 1988. And I was like, well, what do you want me to call the school? He goes, you call it Robinson's because you're in Tonkanic. Everybody knows you. So yeah. that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 1988. And at that time, were you across the street from where we are now, or was it a different street? No, in 1988, uh, I was on the corner uh, above Facets, which is now a law firm. Yeah, I was okay. Up, I was sharing it with a dance studio. Okay. I was there, and then when that guy who had the other studio was arrested uh, for abusing children, oh, I waited six months, and then I took over his space because I needed more room. And then I was there for 10 years looking at this building, saying, boy, God, if you would give me that building, I would, I would really like to expand my... You know, so I just got, you know, if you could bless me with that, yeah. I promise I'll dedicate it to you and I'll do, and that's, went from there. Fantastic. So, yeah. Wow. So let me back up for one, one second. I'd like to ask, your parents would not let you train? Was no, there, my, my mom would, my, my stepfather was kind of a harsh guy, thought karate was the biggest waste of time, saw no potential in me in anything, just told me how stupid I was and worthless, and, which is all in my book. But, uh, so I would sneak out. Uh, after my brother-in-law divorced my sister for those three years, we lived right by the high school. So I would go every day over to the football field, and I would practice the stuff he showed me for an hour and then go home. Okay. And in the wintertime, I would go over in the wintertime, you know, in the cold, with my boots on, and practice for an hour and then go home. And he didn't know what I was doing because okay. he didn't pay attention. You know? okay. So, okay. And then when the, the actual adult education class started, my mom gave me the $25 to go, and you know, we just, I'm going to the library. And when he found out what I was really doing, he was not happy, but by then it was too late. Wow. You know. So I've interviewed a couple, the reason I asked that question, sir, is I've interviewed some people whose parents didn't want them to train in martial arts because it was violent. They didn't want them to be a fighter. So I just, I nah. just wanted to, I was just curious. Wasn't certain, that, certain they, they just thought it was a waste of time and there was, there was no use for martial arts. I live in a small town. What are you gonna do with it? You're wasting yeah. your time. Um, you know, kind and of thing. Let's let's say back in the in the eighties as well, um, or seventies, eighties. It wasn't well known. Right? No, I mean it was no. just barely coming on the scene. Let's say maybe with kung fu and stuff. Right. But it, around Tunkhannock, yeah, well you know, known. it's a farming community. Yes, wasn't yes, well known. Exactly. I think in Tunkhannock, then in seventy six, there were only two people I knew of that did martial arts in Tunkhannock. A, a kid that was a couple of years ahead of me in school, and he was traveling to Scranton to train with Master Trigenowitz, and my brother in law. Yeah. And then when I started, you know, no, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't want anybody to know. And then when they finally opened that studio, that was, I think, 1979. No, it was 1980, because I was a sophomore. When they, when they started teaching that adult in the fifth grade building, that's when uh, Tunkhannock started accepting it a little bit. A yeah. lot of people, but a lot of people were in and out. I mean, I started in a class of 50 people. By the time I got my black belt in 1983, they had already cycled through probably 400 people. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was the only one that was in the original class that made wow. it. Wow. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about some of the differences from back then to now. Oh, differences in training, differences in attitude, differences in business, differences in... Training, training and attitude is what I would uh, most curious about. Um, okay. Because like I said, I, in all honesty, I really thought I'd come in here and the, the, the air conditioning would be on. Nah, okay, nah. I mean that's the that's the American uh, idea yeah. uh, of a lot of dojos and barely break a sweat and go home. The, you never have to wash the gi. And that's because of the business model in America now. You know, you know, for years people taught martial arts out of the love of martial arts. They trained, they got benefits, and they wanted to turn out high quality students and get the benefit of you know confidence and you know, able to defend yourself. And you were tough and you could take a beating if you had to. You know mm -hmm. that kind of thing. It changed around the late 80s because business people realized, hey, I can make money teaching martial arts. Okay. So a lot of people now, what they do is, and I, I don't judge anybody, so you do what you want. Um, it's about having a lot of students, making everybody happy, lowering the standard a little bit so everybody feels good about what they're doing, then they bring in their family and their friends and you can make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I've got friends that make $40,000 a month teaching martial arts. Mm 
They've got air-conditioned studios. Their classes are 45 minutes. Everybody feels good. Awesome. But what's the quality of the student? Yeah. I see it as I'm obligated. If you come to me and want to take a martial arts lesson, why do people go to karate schools? To learn self-defense. No one comes to a karate school and says, hey, I want to learn forms. I want to learn weapons. I want to compete in tournaments. And I want to feel good about it. No one does that. It's I want to get in shape and I want to be able to defend myself. All those other stuff are add-ons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I've always taken it as, as a kid that was bullied, I want to give my students the best opportunity to defend themselves no matter where they are. So the training that I do is, if I can make money, great, but I don't focus on money. If you treat the students right mm -hmm. and you give them a high quality class, the money will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. So the way I teach my students is the way I was taught, with little modifications. I don't hit them with a shanai. I don't yell at them, I don't degrade them. Like we were always told, you know, that technique is horrible, you need to, you know, jazz it up. Yeah. I, I don't do that, yeah. you know. Um, so what we do is, when I started, the kids' class was an hour and a half. I took the kids' class. The adult class was two and a half hours. I took the adults' class. So I was in the studio four hours a day, training, because I loved it. And the instructors were a little abusive verbally, and they could be physically, but I was already used to that from my home life. So it's like, you're not yeah. gonna drive me out, you're actually making me comfortable, because yep. I can relate to this. Yep. That makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. So our training is, I focus, my main focus is on, I want them to be in really good physical shape. I want to build their confidence, not lying to them and saying, hey, you're awesome when you're not. Yep. Say, that's a good job that you can do, try this and see if, it's, if it doesn't get better. But I want them to have the opportunity to be able to defend themselves. Yeah. Self-defense is number good. one. Very good. And then I teach, of course, the traditional forms because that's history. Yes. You don't want to lose history. Right. That's how I do it. I don't use air conditioning because air conditioning, I think, is not healthy, first of all. I want people to sweat, get the toxins out. I want people to be uncomfortable. Because when you work through your uncomfortableness, that's how you grow mentally, physically, and spiritually. If you're always comfortable and you've never had a struggle, how are you going to grow? We learn from pain and struggle, and that's another chapter in my book that I wrote. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's, that's my philosophy. Yeah. That, you know, who knows? I could be way out there. But I can say this. This is a town of 1,700 people. That's a small town. Mm -hmm. um, I've got 200 and some black belts on the wall. Out of that 200 and some, even though I don't focus on tournaments, 190 of them have been tournament champions. That includes world, regional, and East Coast champions. We've got 28 grand champions. Your friend Drew Hobbs yep. has won three grand championships in America and he won the Netherlands grand championship. Wow. So Steve Garnicki, you know he Steve, yep. he's won two grand championships. So, you know, yeah. even though I don't focus, we go to two tournaments a year, okay. maybe three. I don't push them, that's not my emphasis. Yep. If you want to train for that, <clears throat> I'll, I'll train you, but I don't really care if you go or not. That's not my yep. focus. That's actually <clears throat> maybe a bit of ignorance on my part, but a little bit of another myth that a lot of, a lot of uh, Dojos or studios in the states are, are tournament based, tournament focused. I think a lot of them are. A lot of them are. Yeah, it's absolutely. And that's they, they think that trophy and that medal means something. Yeah. You know, you can meet. I've, I've met people in my travels, and I've traveled and taught all over the world, who have won numerous tournaments. Great point fighters. Put them in a self defense situation. They can't fight the yeah. way of a paper bag. Right. Right. But yet they've won five grand championships in point fighting. Yeah. Well, that's not reality. You know, what do you do when someone latches onto you and they're like choking you, not with their arms out straight, with a light grip, their elbows are bent yeah. and they're squeezing the stuffing out of your throat. Yep. That's when people panic, you know, yep. so that's... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so outside of Tang Soo Do, yeah. uh, you've also trained some, some different martial arts. Yeah, I studied boxing for three years uh, because I had a guy come into the karate school when I was t 20 and he was a boxer in the Navy. And uh, he said, hey, you want to spar? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So. He said, okay, we'll do a couple rounds. So the first rounds, I was kicking the crap out of him, you know, because I was back then I was a real good kicker, I kick high. Second round, he's like, heck with this, and he got inside and he worked me over, and I'm like, hmm. Third round, I couldn't even touch him because he figured out my kicks and I, I didn't really have any hands. So I was like, mm -hmm. I need to study boxing. So okay. I went down to Scranton to a guy named Paul Hook O'Malley, who was training professional and golden glove boxers. And for the first six months, he put me in front of a mirror. With a name like O'Malley, he had to be. Yeah, right? yeah. Paul Hook O'Malley was his name. I'd walk into his gym. It was Northeast Fitness Center at the time. And he'd give me a piece of cinnamon gum. And he'd put a little half of a rubber ball in my hand. And he'd put me in front of a mirror. For two hours, he'd have me throw a jab and just squeeze that ball. 
He says, your jab is your number one weapon. He says, if you get the jab down well, you'll be able to knock people out with your jab because that sets everything else up. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I did that for six months. Then he taught me the right cross. Then he taught me the hook. Um, and I did that for two years with him, two or three years. And he like wanted me. I said, I'm not here to get in the ring. I don't want to get punched in the head. I just want to learn the skills. So I got in the ring one day. I came back. I was in the ring with some friends of mine. And we we're going at And I actually knocked somebody out with my jab by accident. I was like, oh, man, I'm really sorry. But um, so, yeah, I mean, that was the boxing. I did uh, hop keto for oh. a long time okay. with several different hop keto teachers. I've done jujitsu. Um, I trained with Wally J for a very okay. small, only through very seminars. Very well-known name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, small circle jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And when I went to him, I said, look, sir, I'm not here to get belts in your system. I'm, my focus is world tongue But my instructor, Grandmaster J. Chul Shin, said, by the time you're a second-degree black belt, you've got your basic system. You've got your roots. Now, you go out and study other things, yeah. bring it back, and you can enhance our stuff. So I said, I want the essence of what you do. I want to learn the most important principles of your art so I can improve my, and he was like, I appreciate your honesty, so he showed me. And the biggest thing I got from him is the concept of push-pull, two-way action. And that's when you do a joint lock, like we always do a joint lock and we're kind of like locking mm -hmm. it. His thing was, it's like a water spigot. You're, you're gonna push with this and you're gonna pull with mm -hmm. this and amplify the pain. Mm -hmm. And my self-defense stuff went through the ceiling. Yep. You know, it's so much easier to break people's joints when you're doing two-way action yep. and not thinking about. Yep. Simple things, yep. you know, like one one dimensional. Um, I did some Eskrima, I did some Arnis, I did some Cali. Okay. Um, all fun and stuff. And Cali. Eskrima and Arnis are both Philip. focused on the short short staff. Right. Actually, all three of them are, are you know Filipino arts, yep. depending on which section of the Philippines you come from. But it's anything you do with a machete, okay. a stick, or a knife, you can do with your empty hand. Okay. So everything, okay. like the one, the one guy taught me the, the pattern of 16 angles. Okay. Another guy said, well, I'll teach you 21 angles. They're all the same. Okay. How many angles really are there? Think about <laughs> it. You've, you can come from the right, right? Yes. You can come from the left. You can come from the right up. You can come from the left up. You can come from the right across. You can come from the left across. You can go up and you go down. Those are your basic yeah. angles. But then they built on it. That's like hot keto. Um, they really have like six basic techniques, but they say they've got 2,000 because it's, it's, they build on the basic six. Apkido is also uh, a Korean yes. uh, style of martial arts. Yes. Uh, actually, um, Jihan Jae is considered by many people to be the founder of Apkido. Um, but he was a student of Cho Yong Sul. The way I understood and the way it was explained to me by my original Apkido teacher is Cho Yong Sul and Miru Yushiba from Aikido were both students of Takida. Takida taught uh, Daitaru Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, which is, I don't know if you know anything about these guys. Very brutal form of martial arts where they broke bones yeah, and okay. destroyed Aiki joints. Aiki Jiu-Jitsu sounds familiar even from, the, from, Jap from yeah, Japan. Yeah. From so, Japan. Yeah, so Daitaru Aiki Jiu-Jitsu came from Takida. So he actually taught Muri Yoshiba, who had a religious experience, and made the art of Aikido, so it was less damaging, it was more gentle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Choi Young Sul, you know, took it and made it a little more gentle, but harsher than Aikido. So, you know, you study hot keto the way with my original teacher that I trained with. Um, joint locking, throwing, sweeping, great kicks um, to devastate. But then, you know, there's, there's different, different hot keto mm -hmm. organizations. Mm -hmm. The problem with hot keto, which is a great art, is it's not organized. Okay. I think Master John Godwin and uh, some of the, and Master Ken McKenzie, they spent a lot of time with uh, Jihan Jay, and they're organizing hop keto in a way that it's easier to teach and it's got a structure. Okay. And because they're, they're both grandmasters now, um, and Jihan Jay has since retired. I don't know if you if, if you saw Bruce Lee's movie. Uh, what was that one? Game of Death. Yes. When he goes up. And he fights the guy in the gold yes. trim. That was Jihan Jay. Okay. So, okay. yeah. So it's, it's just fascinating how... But Hapkido was never... It was always like a, a supplemental art to Tong Sudo, Taekwondo, because it wasn't really well-structured. Uh -huh. where, where these guys are really structured. Like every Hapkido organization has its own curriculum. Okay. Where uh, Master John, Grandmaster John Godwin and Master Ken McKenzie have really structured it and laid it out in a much more organized fashion. Okay. 
So, but there's a lot of Hapkido, and it's all good. There's, yeah. There is no bad Hapkido organization as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Well, I ha so let's talk about Tang Sudo, because, you know, in the sense of martial arts, there's this term karate. Right. In America, everything's karate. Right. Typically everything, right? Right. And maybe now with UFC over the last decade or more, maybe just general MMA or martial arts is a term that a lot of people use, but still... Karate is the, the main right, right. name, right? Which, if we get down to brass tacks there, karate's from Okinawa. Correct. Tang Sudo is from Korea. Yeah, Tang Sudo is Tung, Tung, from Korea. Tung, Tung, yeah, Tang. It's spelled Tang, pronounced yep. Tang. Okay. Um, and you ask, and you get different histories. Uh, watching it, I, I think Tang Sudo, they, they give China a lot of credit okay. for, for what we do. We do too, as a matter of fact. Right. I, everybody Okinawa. should. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think, I think Tang Sudo is a lot like Okinawan martial arts. I, I, you know, if you watch our forums, they're the same as yeah, Okinawan forums. Yeah, And uh, Shotokan, same thing. Yes. Kind of thing. So I, I don't get, you know, as I've gotten older and, and trained longer and longer, I stay in Tang Sudo because that was my root. That was that's my love and my passion, but I don't get into these great extensive histories of this is what this isn't because, let's be honest, a lot of the stuff that we're being told, no one ever knows the exact yep. truth. Yep. Like we were talking earlier, yep. even the stuff you're being told, your grandmaster's oh we really don't know that yep. person. So I'm not going to say that's what it is. I, I personally believe that Wonky, you know, spent some time with an Okinawan and a Japanese and and Korean. It's got Korean flavor. For example, Okinawans don't do. Uh, crescent kicks, right. Tom Sudo does. Right. Um, you guys don't do knife hand blocks. We right. do. In fact, you guys don't even use the word block. Right. You use the word right. thrust. Right. You know, we still use the word block, even though I tell my students there, there's no such thing as a block in martial arts. We call it a block, but it's yeah. really not a block. Yeah. In generic, we do too, but in, in reality, there's no. There are block. no blocks. The word uke will means to receive. Right. Yeah. Right. Because think about it from a so I'm always about self defense. From a self-defense perspective, if someone's throwing strikes at you and you're blocking, what are you doing? You're trying not to get hit. Mm -hmm. You're totally on the defense. Sooner or later, you're going to miss and get hit. Yeah. Right? What animal in the world throws a block when they fight? I've seen mountain rams on, on you know, nature shows when mm -hmm. I was at home fight. Neither one threw a block. I've seen two dogs fight. Neither one threw right. a block. Right? Yeah. yeah. I've seen white-tailed deer fight. Yep. Neither one throws a block, so why are we throwing blocks? And then you get into that zone of, I'm going to block and counter. Yeah, yeah. You're setting yourself up for failure. There is no yeah. block. There is only preemptive strike. When you're, when you're talking so much aggressively, and I've, I've got my hands up, I'm backing away, I don't want any trouble, and you continue, it's only going to go so far before I realize you're, and I'm going to preemptive strike you. Yes. I'm not going to stand back and block. What's the best thing to do when someone attacks you? Move into Move them. In. Yeah, because the they don't expect that, yep. right? Yep. You've already taken them out of the fight psychologically because people attack people. Why? They think they're weaker than them or dumber than them, and they're not going to fight back. Right. So when someone throws a punch and you've moved in and you've already hit their carotid artery, hit their eyes, their mind's already like, what the heck just happened? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm dazed and confused. Mm -hmm. That's called a conscious knockout. They're wide awake, but consciously they're knocked out. It's like, you know, I, I don't know what's next. By the time they think about it, you're going to hit them again and again and again. They're not going to get yep. the opportunity to do anything else. Yep. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So that's how I look at it. Yep. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, Tung Sudo, um, it's, it's, my, it's my passion, it's my love, but I love all martial arts. I don't believe there's any one better than the other. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of forms. Uh, Grandmaster Shin was big on always working basics, basics. To get to the point of Mushin, empty thought, mm -hmm. mindless action. Mm -hmm. You know, every once in a while we lose spontaneous self-defense mm -hmm. while we just people. Whenever you're ready to attack me, I don't care how you do it. Yeah. And they'll say, what'd you just do to me? And I'm like, I don't know. I just reacted. Yep. That's what you want to get to. Yep. I don't have a set that I'm going to do this when this happens. Yep. In your class, do you typically run, in the beginning of class, like we ran through warm-ups tonight, is that, is that a general class, what we did tonight, the warm-ups? With the punches, the kicks? Yeah, we start every class uh, with some calisthenics to get the body warmed up. We always start, Grimace Shin always said, start with Palpuki, which is the basic punch exercise. Okay. And the philosophy behind that is, one, you want to have a hard punch, but two, no matter how much you train, you're almost always going to punch first. And what I normally do, but because you were here, I didn't, what I normally do is we do our Papuki traditional karate punching, 
and then we do some boxing punching where they get in a, a natural fighting stance. Okay, I'm we glad you said that. Right. Because I was going to ask, right. after going to boxing training, did you incorporate... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, because think about it. A, yeah. When you're on the street, no one punches like yes, this. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I get my students to understand how to jab yeah. and how to rotate using their hip, yeah. bend the knee, rotating the ball of your foot yeah. for that power. Yeah. Um, because there are people who still believe that the traditional karate punch is the most powerful punch in the world. Not saying it's not, but you throw a good right cross yeah, yeah. and you put your whole body behind it, that is a powerful sure punch. Is, sure is, yeah. Powerful punch. So your master, uh, he would run the, uh, the warm-ups pretty much the same way and you've kind of kept that same Yeah, I've kept the tradition. So it's papuki, you know, we might do jumping jacks and push-ups and sit-ups first, but it's always papuki first. And then after papuki, we might do some other hand techniques. And then it's usually some conditioning and then it's line drills up yep. and down the floor. Yep. Um, so in Okinawa, we would call that kihon, basics. Right, it's a, always. It's a generic translation of basic, and we do it the same thing, always. Usually always. 15 to 20 minutes, yep. 10 minutes of hands, just drilling up, and, and the pace is fast, yep. because we're conditioning. Yep. You know, I want people to build their cardio, muscle strength, muscle endurance, yep. and then we do kicks, and then we might do pad kicks for a while, you know, to get the power. I mean, kicking in the air is fun, but I know people that have kicked in the air the whole life, never kicked anything. Yeah. And then they wonder why they can't break a board. Yeah. Well, you never kicked anything. You got to kick something. Yeah. I'm not big on kicking heavy bags uh, anymore because I did a lot of that when I was young. And I think that's how I damaged my hips. Because okay. think about it. If you're kicking a heavy bag for an hour, where's that energy going? It's going right up into the hip socket. I've had both my hip replaced. Oh, okay. Because I did a lot of heavy bag work when I was young. And think about Bill Wallace. He's had both hips yes. replaced. Why is that? A lot of heavy bag work, right? Yeah. And Bill Wallace was like... Phenomenal fighter. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, uh, we were talking earlier, too, before we were doing the interview about the punching Makawara. Right. And you've experienced shoulder issues, and so have I. Right. Uh, by, I, be, uh, you know, I'll say it by being the stupid American. You know, trying to punch so hard, you know, I got to break this thing or whatever. But your body actually damage first. I, that's the one thing I tell my students. I'm like, you guys have the benefit of being trained by an instructor that loves you and cares about you and has done the science and the research behind it. Because I've been a personal trainer for 15 years. Uh, I was a, I've been a nurse you know, since 2003. And I've spent a lot of time studying and researching and going to physical therapists and getting ideas. No one told, you know, back then it was yep. military style. Yes. You, know, you did the push-ups on the concrete floor and you know, they'd punch it yep. a little bit. But then they'd set up the Makiora board. Yep. And they would say, I want you to punch it as hard as you can. Yep. Where's that energy going? It's going to reverberate up through your elbow and into your shoulder. Well, that's just going to destroy the joint. Yep. You know, my shoulders are destroyed from that. So I tell my students, I was taught wrong. You don't have to pound that that hard. You just have to be hitting it, and that's going to condition over time. You know, I can remember doing a thousand punches a day three times a week. You know, the, the Makiwara would be all bloody. And, my, and I'm like, oh, look how tough I am. Well, after my brain surgery, they did a body bone scan, and they're like, man, you got the hands of a 90-year-old. I'm like, oh, that stops. I instantly stopped hitting the Mackie War after that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, we didn't know what we didn't, didn't know. know. yeah. Today, most good instructors do research. They're constantly researching. How can I train my students to prevent injury while strengthening their body and building muscle strength and muscle endurance? I incorporate everything I do in the martial arts in my personal training. I got these football players that come in, mm -hmm. and they want to push all these heavy weights, but their technique is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to do 10 reps with that. I'm like, no. Let's, let's lighten the weight a little bit. Let's slow it down. Time under tension, you're going to build muscle, and you're going to build strength. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to do 10 reps and you're done. I want you to push that weight for a minute. And they're like, oh, I'm so sore. I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to have the injuries from all that repetitive right. motion. Right. So, yep. yeah. I've asked other senseis about the Makawara in Okinawa, and there's some mixed reviews about it. I know some that don't punch it anymore. I know some that still do, but a little bit easier. There's still some that punch the floor, you know, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit softer now than they did. I try to tell, I have two daughters, a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I won't let them punch anything except a soft bag. Right. And even when we're on a hardwood floor, uh, and we do, we'll do push-ups on our knuckles, but not for the reason of the knuckles per se, but for the strengthening of the wrist. Correct. When you go in that down position, in the angle it puts on your wrist, which is, is better for punching. And then actually my sensei, 
And North Carolina went through the same thing, punching the micro wire, you know, too hard, this and that. But he said, no, if you want to do that the right way, do the push-ups. He's the one that told me that. And then just draw back and lightly touch the floor. Just lightly touch it. Right. So you know it's there, hardwood right. floor. Then do push-ups, draw, and just lightly touch it. But right. I, I never punched the Mach wire with him in the time that I trained in North Carolina. We right. had one in our other dojo. I'd punch it, but rarely. Just different. I, th I think it was ego back then. I mean, yeah. think about it. Most of the people that taught in the 70s and early 80s were ex-military. Yeah. Or they were people that trained with ex-military, yeah. and they wanted to be tough. They had to show tough. So they, they brainwashed us into thinking that that's what we needed to do. Yeah. And we ended up with injuries. Yep. I mean, all the guys that started way back in the 70s and early 80s, they've all had many, many problems. And how many of them are still training now? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've been training. I've never stopped. Yep. Even after my surgery, if I have a surgery, within two days I'm training on some level, doing yep. something. I don't ever want to stop. That's not good. But we were talking about earlier about boxing. I tell people all the time on the street, you're not going to punch somebody. Palm of your hand will do the same damage. A knife hand is even better because it's you know smaller and it hits those nerves. Mm -hmm. Grab the eyes, you know, poke the eyes, whatever. You don't need to punch. Right. You know, the metacarpals are the smallest bones in the body. Yep. Metatarsals, smallest yep. bones in the body. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah. Your master, um, I'd like to talk about him a little bit more. If sure. You can. Sure. Um, your master was uh, originally from Korea. Yes, Grandmaster Jay Chul Shin was from Korea. Born, born in Korea, uh, but did he travel to the states often? Lived in the states? How did you find? How did you get no, your training under him? No, he he became well known because he was Chuck Norris's teacher. In fact, he never called Chuck Norris Chuck Norris. He always called him by his real name, Carlos. I didn't know it was. Yeah, his real name is Carlos Ray Norris. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm the king of Chuck Norris trivia. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, he trained with Grandmaster Shin over in Korea, along with the current Grandmaster of our organization, Grandmaster Bob Bowman and a bunch of guys. And they would train over there four to six hours a day. They got their black belts in six to nine months because they were only there a short time. But training they, long time. But training long time, yeah. training. And I, you know, yeah, so Grandmaster Shin had all these guys and they came back to the States and they would say, hey, um, you know, we want you to come over. He goes, no, I'm, I'm you know, doing this thing over there. And then his instructor, Wong Ki, had sent over two masters at different times to start a Tungstead organization, and they really couldn't get it going. They had some following, but not a huge following. So in 1960... Where did he send them? Uh, usually, I think one was East Coast and one was West Coast. Long Island, L.A., maybe? Yeah, maybe. Like uh, well, I think, yeah. It was Master yeah. Shim and Master... I don't want to get it wrong. I think it was Master Shim and Master Kim. I'm not positive. Okay. Don't quote me on that. But they had some success. But Grandmaster Shin had all these military guys over here and okay. had, had a good rapport. Okay. So in 1968, Wong Ki sent him over and he opened his first studio in Burlington, New Jersey. And instantly had a following. Built up the U.S. Tong Sado Federation. Uh, it was Tong Sado Mutakwan then. Um, all my certificates have Grandmaster Shin's signature on them. Okay. And then uh, Grandmaster Wong Ki said, okay, uh, I'm going to send my son over and he's going to take over. So my instructor left. Kind of, he was kind of like hurt because he mm -hmm. built this up, mm -hmm. and then, mm -hmm. so he left and he stopped for a while. And then he he respected his instructor so much, he went back to Wonky and asked for permission to start his own organization. And Wonky said, "Yeah, but you can't call him Mudaquan." I said, "Okay." So he started the World Tom Sado Association in 1982. Okay. And it exploded. You know, we're all over the world and. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's been a really good experience. Yeah. I asked him one time, when he, he would teach class, and we would train with him, when, we, when I first started training directly under him, it was eight hour class, no water break, no lunch, nothing. And uh, every once in a while, he would get in a mood where he was really talkative, and he'd say, okay, class over, you can ask me any questions you want. So one day, somebody said, tell us about Chuck Norris. And it was the most encouraging thing to me, because he said, Carlos Norris, he goes, nothing special. He said, not a great athlete, not really coordinated. He says, but he first wanted to come to the studio and he trained really, really hard. Last one to leave. He always pushed himself. He always worked hard. He says, Carlos Ray Norris, make himself Chuck Norris. And I was like, wow, wow. that's, there's hope for me. Yep. You know, yeah. and that was probably the most encouraging thing because you know, coming from the background I had, you know, you're worthless, you're stupid, you're, you, there's nothing. And, and now he's talking about Chuck Norris wasn't especially coordinated, wasn't a great athlete. Yeah. 
and look what he turned, you know, look what he yeah. made himself yeah. because he believed himself. And Chuck Norris didn't have a great background. Okay. Did you read every, any of his books? No, I did not. I read one of his books way back when, um, The Secret of Inner Strength. Very, we had very similar backgrounds, except his dad was a drinker. My dad was just mean. My stepdad was just mean. My dad ran off when I was born. So, uh, but yeah, we had we had kind of similar backgrounds. But he had a very strong mother figure. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, his book is great. If you ever get the chance to read it, The Secrets of Inner Strength. Secrets of Inner Strength. It's a great book. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, Grandmaster Shin always says Carlos Norris never called him, never called him Chuck. And did he stay in America then for the rest of? His yeah, life? from 1968 on, he's been in America. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right before he passed away, we built our world headquarters in North Carolina. Ironically, Burlington, North Carolina. Burlington? How weird is that? What's in Burlington, Bur New what's Jersey. In, what's in Burlington? Exactly. There's nothing there. Yeah. I was like, why are we putting headquarters there? But, hey, it was his dream. We have a beautiful building there. Uh, he got to see it, uh, and then, unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, well, he got uh, to see but it. But he got to see it. Yeah. yeah, and it's a beautiful facility, and it's, you know. Wow. Why Burlington? Um... I don't know. Yeah. But there was really no, his biggest, our biggest region is Region 8, which is where you're at now. Region 8? Region okay. 8, yeah, it's the biggest region in the association. I think... Which, go, which goes where? Uh, it's New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Virginia. Um, it was Connecticut, now Connecticut's Region 9. Um, well, there were pieces of Connecticut. Um, who am I forgetting? Maryland. Uh, I think I said Delaware, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so okay. there's like five states, basically. Okay. Region eight. That's many, the biggest region we how have. How many regions are there? 33. 33 regions? Yeah, we're all over the United Oh, that's worldwide regions. Worldwide regions, that, yeah. That, yeah. Okay. He breaks them down. Like there's West Coast, North, you know, Middle East, Middle, Midwest, Midwest yep. South, you know, Region 7 is like Florida and... You know, also, Region 9 is Connecticut. South America. Canada, oh, yeah. We've got schools Europe. in uh, Canada, Argentina. We're all over. Because you Germany. yourself have taught, you mentioned. Uh, I've taught in, in Sweden. Yeah, I've taught in Sweden, Germany, Holland. Uh, trying to think where else. Argentina, Chile, Dominican Republic. I'm having a brain freeze. I've kind of been all over. But that's something I promised him when he said to me when I was young. I want you to travel and help. I'm mean, sure, and uh, but I, I promised him that I would travel and teach. So even after he died, I started traveling more. Yeah. And uh, I actually just That's got back good. from Alaska. Alaska. We have studios in Alaska, and very good studios in yeah. Alaska. Oh yeah, Fairbanks Studios, rocking. That's good. That's a great That's studio, good. man. Those guys are animals up there. So you do uh, primarily. I think you told me three three tournaments a year, primarily. Actually, no, we do so. This is an odd year, so this is uh, 1999, I'm sorry, 2019. So we do the spring championship, it's a region eight spring championship. There's usually 400 competitors, 450. Okay. And then in the fall, we have our big region eight, which is usually between 700 and 800 competitors. And then on even years. Forms and kumi, that's boring. Forms, weapons, and sparring. Forms, weapons, and sparring. And creativity. Okay. Um, and then on even years, like next year, 2020, we'll be down in North Carolina at Greensboro Coliseum. Okay. And that'll be the world championship. So it's the even number of years we have world championships. Okay. And there's usually between 1,500 to 2,200 competitors from all over the world. It, does the awesome. venue change each year? No, we've been at Greensboro. Well, it used to. Okay. We've been at Greensboro Coliseum. Well, Burlington and Greensboro are close enough that it makes sense, then, I guess, yeah. if the headquarters are there. Yeah. Well, that's why they do it, so people can see the headquarters. Yeah. But it used to be like we'd be in Florida one year, we were in Anaheim, we were in Las Vegas. But then when they built the headquarters, you know, we went. Yep. So I think, and we have um, the European Championships, they have them in Germany. They're, I think it's in Nottingham this year. Okay. Um, they've had them, you know, all over Europe. So, okay. yeah, they get good exposure. Good, good exposure. You speak Korean? Uh, no. Um, oh. It's, I speak. I'll do Korean terminology. You do dojo Korean. I do dojo Korean. I do dojo Japanese. Which is hysterical because <laughs> all of us have our own slang. Like, yes. for example, I'll say one thing, and you go to the western side of the state, it's completely yep. different. Yep. You, know, yep. you know how it is. Yep. Um, he tried for two or three years. He gave us these books, and it was Korean. And at the end of our classes, we'd do 45 minutes of Korean. After the second year, he goes, I give up. You, 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 you guys just cannot learn Korean at all. <laughs> he just stopped. Now, there are certain members in the association that yep. can speak Korean, but yep. I'm not one of them. Yeah. And my thing is this. I live in America, yeah. so I speak English a lot in my yeah. class because 
you know, I've got a lot of kids. They yeah. don't, no. I'll say it in Korean and I say it in English and I help them repeat it, yeah. but we only do it for the tradition. Like well, I think it's fantastic. History. It's history. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And it's something most people can't do. Yep. Yep. So it's traditional. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's great. Yeah. Um, yep. How many forms are there in Tang Sudo? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to say right around 27. I might okay. be missing. That, that's empty hand forms. Empty that's hand not, yes, that's yes, not yes. weapons. That's okay. empty hands. Okay. 27, 28. I don't, I don't want to use my fingers to add them up, but there's, you got the five Pyongans. We have yeah. the three basics, so that's eight. Then you got Basai, Shipsu, the three Nahanshis, Gento, Rohai, Kung Song Kung. Oh, man. Seishan, um, Oship Sabo, Gion, and then we've got the Sege Jankwon, the Grandmaster form, which has 99 moves, uh, Wunsu. Um, so there's a lot of forms. Okay, there's a lot of lay overlap with yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A lot of those terms, which tonight we did uh, Pinan Shodan through Yongdan, right? And we did Naihanchi Shodan. Yes. Which I was surprised that you did Nahachi. I didn't know that you were going to do that. Sure. So you have Nahachi Shodan, Nidan, Sandan as well. Correct. Um, and then Pinan Shodan through Godan. Yeah, we, we call it Odan, but you Odan. call it okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, Go is five. Correct. Yep, Godan. Um, now, weapons. How, approximately how many weapons? So we have, we have three staff forms. We have three sword forms. Uh, one cane form and one dagger form. Okay. But I teach my students... Um, Certain students, not all. Uh, I also teach the nunchucks, I teach the commas, okay. and I teach uh, the nebo, which comes from uh, Goshen Jitsu, and that's taking the stick that you would use for the Filipino arts, mm -hmm. and you hold it in the middle. Okay. It's not so much the hard swing, it's more of a snapping, okay. where you actually put it against your arm, and it's, it's to stun people. Yep. Okay. So yeah, I, I teach that uh, kata as well, yep. only one of those. Okay. Yeah. All right, interesting. Um, now, the students that come in here, I see uh, over behind us, in Okinawa, we call it a bow. Right. We um, call it a bong, B-O-N-G. B-O-N-G? Yeah, most people, they think of bong, they think about that, you know, yeah. that funny pipe. Yeah. But no, it's uh, Korean, it's bong, B-O-N-G. The staff is called? Bong. Okay, mm -hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. I just always heard it called staff, primarily right. in America. The students that come in here, uh, children and adults, is it... Pretty much one curriculum. They're going to do it all. I teach one curriculum. I don't. I. My thing is this: whether you're a child or an adult. What are adults? Big kids. They're just big kids. <laughs> what are kids? They're little tiny adults. I teach the same. Now the pace might be different, but I teach the same curriculum. Okay. And and I explain why their parents are here. What this is really about. Like a lot of people say, this isn't about funny games. When you when you strike somebody, if you're going to punch somebody, your goal is not to hit them here. Your goal is to take your fist and drive it through their face so it comes out the outside of their head. Visualize that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know that's harsh, but that's the reality. of The idea is to break the evil of someone's attack. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not mamby-pamby. If someone's going to attack you, your goal is to break the evil of their attack. Stop them. Yep. Otherwise, they're going to keep hurting them. So that's how we train. Yep. I would like, if possible, uh, to talk about your book. We've mentioned sure. a couple times. I realize it's not a martial arts book. Not a martial arts book. book. Uh, but I'm interested in it because of your of your lifestyle that you've explained to me just a little bit already in, in this two hours that we've been here tonight and how it how I feel it correlates into martial arts. So right. if, if you don't mind. Well, for me, everything I do is about martial arts. So when I graduated from college, my degree was in criminology with a minor in psychology. So I was trying to get in the state police academy and I was trying to get in the state prison system. And that was when affirmative action was big. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't get anything. Mm -hmm. I got bumped out by veterans' preference, and mm -hmm. which is okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I got a job as a psychotherapist. And I got a lot of training because, okay, now I want to understand what makes people tick. I want to know the psychology mm -hmm. of why do people think the things they think and do the things they do. That will enhance my martial arts. I can, now I can read people better. I went to nursing school, you know, after... Because I was, I've always studied, you know, all this stuff, but I knew that I wasn't interested enough in certain things to really study it out. But if I went to nursing school, I'd be forced to study. Mm -hmm. So when you go to nursing school, you've got to know all the systems of the body, the organ systems in detail and how they work and how they function. So you learn how they function. Now you know how you can disrupt them. And now it made my pressure point stuff and my other stuff make sense. So it really helped. So the, the book is actually about... Uh, 
some of it's my life story, because I've had people say you should write your life, but I don't think my life's that interesting. But, okay. But it's actually about the three big lies told in America, and that we've all been told. One is, the little guy can't get ahead. Huge lie. Two is, you have to go to college or you're going to struggle and not be successful. Another lie. Three is that your genetics determine how long you're going to live and how healthy you're going to be. Another lie. So I start out with the book giving some of my background of, of my family. I talk about coming from a family of chaos and abuse where there was no support, there was no affection, there was no... So I grew up afraid of people, uh, very intimidated, bullied a lot. Um, I talk about how I failed, actually failed kindergarten. Um, but they pushed me through because I was a quiet, polite kid. Um, then I went to second, uh, first grade and they pushed me through again. Second grade, they held me back. Again, because, one, because I couldn't sit still. My anxiety was so bad from PTSD from my home life that when I was in school, if I was sitting in a chair, my leg was going or I was rocking mm -hmm. and the teachers would just flip out on me. The other part of that was I couldn't, no one could understand me. Mm -hmm. Come to find out I was tongue-tied. Uh, let me back up. When I was two, my family doctor told my mom to have me institutionalized. I was profoundly retarded mm -hmm. because I couldn't talk. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very fearful. Mm -hmm. But it was some trauma going on in my house. So I, this new doctor came to town, took me there, he cut my tongue, I went to speech therapy, whatever. So I had problems in school because of severe anxiety and feeling stupid. And I talk about that in my book. And then I, so I talk about fear and lies in the book and how we believe all these lies that aren't even true, that other people tell us. And I talk about fear and how fear holds us back. Then I get into the three big lies that the world tells us. And then I get into the truth and how to be successful. And I do some social commentary. And I talk about the, the amazing, unusual gift of pain and struggle. And how we only grow through a certain amount of pain and struggle. Like, had I not had the pain and struggle of all the stuff I've been through, I probably wouldn't have came to cry. You know, I've got children in my karate school, and I, I talk to them and the parents all the time. I said, and the parents would be like, my son doesn't really try that hard. I don't know. I'm like, well, we give them what we can give them, but it's up to them to try. I said, let me tell you what I think. I said, you're, you love your children. You're really good with your children. You communicate. You hug them. You kiss them. You love them. They have nothing to prove. Yeah. So they're here knowing if they screw up, you're still going to love them. Yeah. I said, myself and a lot of people in the studio didn't come from that background. So we're always looking for acceptance. Like We want people to say, great job. You did a great job. Push, push, push. That's how I ended up. Yeah. You know, getting as far as I did from a young age, is the instructors would say, man, Kevin, you, you are a top student. I wanted to hear that because I pushed. And if they beat me, they say, go ahead and beat me. I'm not going to leave. So I talk about pain and struggle in the book and how it can benefit you. And you can either use it as a crutch or you can use it to propel you forward. Uh, and I talk about uh, social commentary about the disconnected connected and how we're all distracted by entertainment and we're not thinking anymore. So that's, that's what the book's about. Yeah. It's, it's actually called Rising Above, a, a not-so-ordinary ordinary life. And I'll tell you how I got to that, that title, um, because I was in, when I, when I stopped doing psychotherapy for a job, I started going to psychotherapy because one of my last assignments was I was working with people that were molested and sexually abused. And I had this group of women and uh, we were doing some real intense stuff, and, this, and everybody's crying in the room, and it's a pretty intense, very sad stories. And this one lady was very traumatized, and she's screaming at me, you don't know what it's like to be abused. You don't, and it was like this movie screen came out of the ceiling, and it was a flashback of when I was 12 years old and I was molested. I completely blocked it. That's in the book as well. Um, the whole experience, it, it came back so strong. So I ended up, quitting that job, and getting counseling myself. Mm. For the PTSD, I always thought I had depression and, and, and stuff. And the counselor's like, no, Kevin, he's, he's like, you were abused, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally. Mm -hmm. He said, you have PTSD. I'm like, oh. So I went through all this counseling, and that's what the book's about. How to rise above all your crap and, and, and reach your goals. My goal was never to teach karate. I just wanted to shave my head, move to China, be able to defend myself and defend other people like Kwai Chang Kane yeah. did, right? Yeah, yeah. 
God had a different plan. You know, the instructor stopped coming in. I started teaching in high school. Fell in love with teaching. When I went to college, I dropped my speech class because I couldn't stand in front of 10 people yeah. and give a speech. Yeah. Right? Yep. Grandmaster Shin says to me one year, I need you to speak at Black Belt Camp. Well, all right. <laughs> now I'm standing in front of 500 people giving a speech. First time in the history of the Black Belt Camp at that time, I got a standing ovation. And you know what I talked about? Snicker bar black belts. You're looking at what's that mean? How, you know the snicker bar commercial? Yes. I, I don't know how it is now, but back then, this was the 90s, early 90s. They do that commercial. It's so satisfying. You see yeah. somebody climbing up the mountain and they're really tired and they've got to stop and eat that snicker bar and they get the energy to keep going. Yeah. It's so satisfying. And then it ends the commercial. Snickers, it satisfies. So I talk about snicker bar black belts. Are you satisfied? And why you shouldn't be. So when you're satisfied, you don't train as hard. Mm -hmm. You don't try to grow your school. Mm -hmm. You don't try to learn other things and share. Mm -hmm. You don't work on your mental and emotional strength. And what we and then I talked about what we need to do. I got a standing ovation for 500 people, and I'm like, oh. And then the grandmaster got up and goes, I never know Kevin Robinson, uh, who's so shy, <laughs> such a powerful speaker, right? And then. This motivational speaker gets up after me and he goes, well, I don't know what to do because that's a hard act to follow. And I'm sitting there going, what are you guys talking about? And then I fell in love with public speaking. Yeah. And, so, and it's all about, because of pain. I never prepare a speech. I just talk from my heart and my head. Real. Got to be real. That's it. And I talk about that in the book. Rising above a not-so-ordinary, ordinary life. Right. Authored by Tank Sudol Master Kevin J. Robinson. Yeah. Wow. Because I had a not-so-ordinary life but no one does that's why no it's one does. that's why yeah. i put down the bottom yeah. ordinary life because yep. nobody does yep. everybody's oh, got yeah. baggage to work through right yep. uh, i'm trying to get it i self-published it i'm trying to get it to a regular publisher because right now you can only get it off my website really yeah okay yeah well i'm gonna put a, a picture up there and uh speaking it. of website people if people want to get a hold of you in this metropolis of tonkanic yeah but People would drive from here to Scranton to train. People would drive from here to other cities. Um, there's no reason they can't come the other direction. Well, we actually do. I've got students that drive an hour and a half. They passed 10 karate schools come to me. Well, let's get the word out there for more. How can they find you? Facebook? Uh, Facebook, just friend Kevin Robinson. Kevin Robinson. And then, and then there's Robinson's Martial Arts Facebook page. Robinson's Martial um, Arts. I don't think that's private. Is it? I've, I said, I've asked my guys because I don't know. No? And then my website, which I never even go on, is www.robinsonsmai.com. Okay. And, and that's how they can get a hold of me. Or they can just call me. Okay. 570 836 4794. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't have a phone. I do, here. Yeah, I have a landline. I'm a dinosaur. I don't yeah. have a cell phone. No cell phone. Not even a flip phone. No, no, never. Never had one. My brain surgeon said no. Never. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's so. fantastic. Wow. Master Robinson. Thank, Thank you, my friend. So it was much. so nice really to meet you. Appreciate I'm, it. I'm so glad you came in. I am very glad that you allowed me to come in and that you allowed me to do this interview. Thank you so much. Anyone's allowed to come in and train your time. And, and we're, we try to learn from them, too. A lot of guests come in, and what will happen is they'll train with us, and then yeah. we'll take them back and say, hey, show us some of your stuff. Because I want to know as much as I can. Because you're never going to know it all. Never going to know it all. And we've got two legs, two arms, a right. head, hopefully on right. top. And I tell my right. students, you know, you could live to be 100 years old for 100 lifetimes, you're never going to get it off. There's always something more to learn. Yep, absolutely. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank I you again it. so much. And thank you for tuning in to the Okinawa Karate Podcast, coming to you from Tonkanic, Pennsylvania at Robinson's Martial Arts.